with another podcast after a, a little bit of a break of almost a year, but uh, nonetheless. This time we have two amazing people from two actually different sectors, but very much related to culture and the arts. And we're going to have a conversation that, as we just heard in the preparation, is going to bring some controversial thoughts and opinion. So yeah, get ready. But first, let's start off with some introductions of today's speakers, guests, podcast people. Uh, Gabriel, over to you. Uh, who are you and what do you do in your daily life? Thanks a lot, Anastasia. Good evening to you all. A pleasure meeting you for the first time, Frederick. And thanks a lot for having me for this second season of, of this new season of your podcast series. It's a real pleasure. My name is Gabriel Bonneville. I'm a policy assistant at the European Commission, working in Brussels, originally from France. And I'm mostly dedicating myself to policy around cultural industries, cultural sectors. In I'm also coordinating the European Heritage Label, European Heritage days performing arts in the theater policy and i was recently assisting on the launch of a new event a new it's kind of a program of funding scheme called uh, culture moves europe and that's how we met with anastasia so very much looking forward to this discussion and uh, calling you from brussels in belgium i will tell you all about how we met in just a little bit when we hear from uh, frederick our own team member sweet frederick Thank you for having me. I am Frederick. I am speaking to you from The Hague. I'm working at the Royal Academy of Art here as a policy advisor for the Directorate. And in my connection to the Structura is uh, that I'm actually also uh, part of the core team. I'm a head of advocacy for the Structura. Um, I have a kind of a loose background as a, as a photographer, or, or that's what I, I studied. But uh, at the moment, I'm not necessarily practicing that, but rather working mostly as a kind of educator within uh, within the academy and within the struktura. Well, since we're all doing rounds of introductions, I'll also jump in. Uh, just to say that I'm Anastasia. I've been hosting these, these podcasts before. I started the struktura. And right now I am in Estonia in my uh, painting studio, which also doubles as the struktura's office. Or actually, the struktura office doubles as my studio. It's very multifunctional these days. But now to a uh, promised point, which is how me and Gabriel met. Thanks to these very podcasts, uh, Destructura was invited um, to speak at the launch of Culture Moves Europe in Brussels on the 10th of October. And uh, we, in meaning me, were there um, speaking on behalf of young art professionals. There was a, a big emphasis on emerging arts. And I took part in a panel discussion and I was uh, branded provocative in the conversations that follow the discussions. Um, yeah, I think I was just uh, being frank and honest about the things I had encountered, but um, essentially I was there um, describing the issues that we're encountering as young people in the art sector who wanna stay in the art sector. And in the aftermath of the whole event, uh, with uh, chats and wine, uh, very randomly, me and Gabriel met. I don't even remember on uh, what grounds. Basically, I was saying thank you to Fanchon, who organized the whole thing. And then Gabriel was there, and I was like, ooh, you're in the field that is very, very relevant to what we're doing. Would you be interested in talking to our participants and telling them about the importance of language and the policy-making aspects of art advocacy? 
And she was like, yes, I'm, I'm all for it. Here's my LinkedIn. And then we did a workshop. We did a workshop for district participants. And the workshop went so well that uh, now we're recording a full podcast for everyone to listen to on essentially the same topics. We're talking about language, language that is expected of art professionals who want to be heard by institutions that are giving out funds and also making policy for these culture workers and the language that culture and art professionals are used to using in their daily life and how there is a little bit of a clash there. Gabriel, have I missed anything about the way we met? Not at all. It was beautifully summarized. Thanks a lot, Anastasia. Thank you. I try. And now to the actual um, topic of today's conversation. So a bit of a background. The forum of Destructura 2022 was built a lot on my experience in the European Youth Parliament, where you get a number of people together in one committee, for us, they were think tanks. And that group of young people sits down and discuss, discusses one particular topic that is relevant to them or to Europe or to the world. Basically, you look at that topic, you narrow it down to smaller issues within the topic as a group, discussing everything, finding uh, solutions to disagreements within the group. Consensus is a big thing. And then you look at the smaller sort of issues you have narrowed down from the big topic and you find solutions or you propose solutions to those issues. Again, discussion, consensus, the group has to agree. And the language that is used for those papers, which are basically European Parliament resolutions, is also very much based on the language that the European Parliament uses to phrase their own resolutions. It has to be extremely clear to the point, no uh, embellishments. It has to name an actor, a clear and clear action, a time frame. So like everything you need to jump into some sort of action right away if you want to change things. I think uh, sort of a similar thinking goes for grant writing. If somebody's evaluating your grant proposal, they want to see what concrete actions you're proposing, what effect they're going to have, and how exactly you're going to carry them out. That's, the, that's my understanding so far of a lot of grant writing. There's a lot of other factors involved in grant, um, successful grant applications. But yes, this is the main premise. And then when we started using this uh, European Youth Parliament format at the session, uh, what I was notified about is that it wasn't going very smoothly. There was a lot of questioning of the format itself. So why the hell are we doing it this way? Why, why do we need to have the structure? The structure seems uh, unnecessarily wrong and, you know, imposed upon us. And we want to do things in a different way. And now we're in a situation where we have a person coming from the European Commission, knowing all about that language. And Frederick, who you know, was part of Destructura from the very, very beginning, but also comes from a more culture, arts, language, writing, that pool. 
discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot for introducing the topic, Anastasia, and I think it's absolutely crucial. And I found it quite interesting and symbolic that you decided to start the second, like second season of your podcast, if I'm not mistaken, with such a topic, because actually I think we are going back to the roots of what politics and policies are about. And I think it, it goes to the, it comes, so perhaps we are going back to one very clear point that I would like to start with. It's important to keep in mind in this discussion and whatever your function, whatever your role, that policies and cultural policies do not develop themselves in a vacuum. Whichever piece of decision taking you will be facing, reading, there are always the outcome and the output of a series of discussion with many and numerous engaged players in the field. It's always the output of discussion, negotiation with the stakeholders, with the active players, which means that language, ethos, inter interpersonal relationship, symbolic values, symbolic barriers are actually at the core and at the very heart of whatever decision takers and policy makers in Europe, and that's my focus today, uh, would be producing. So when you can understand that amplifying the voices of young professionals, emerging artists, it's of course about the practice and the tools as you explained, grant writing doesn't come out of the blue, you have to practice a lot, and we can come back to this point if you fancy it, but I think that um, mostly and the most important thing would be to consider this aspect, this dimension that we all have a say in this discussion. It's how can we bring the fore and bring the light on us, which kind of mindset, which kind of words, which kind of language can we use to be heard by those who are drafting policies. That would be, I think, my first point. Nothing is done in a vacuum. It's always a matter of discussion. It's always happened, those kind of informal platforms, such as tonight, when we will be discussing. I'm sure it's a two-sided street. We are both learning from one another. And I think that at least it's a vision I would like to, to see more often in the policymaking, uh, I would say, chain of values or value chains. But perhaps, Frederick, I'm not sure if, uh, if this rings a bell, or perhaps I'm also wondering most of the time what would be the perspectives of direct uh, target group and beneficiaries. And I'm coming here today not representing my institution, of course, and uh, speaking in my own name and own capacity. But um, I do believe that if we want to put anything further and need to push the boundaries of what has been done now, we definitely need to find a middle ground. And luckily enough, and I'm coming from a very bureaucratic vertical background, not referring to the European Commission, but to the French institutions and French administrations. And I'm always happy to see and very pleased and hopeful when I can see that in our venues, in our premises, in our around our negotiation tables, it's such a delight and such a great matter of hope when I see that an Hungarian person is negotiating with an Italian, with an Irish, and with an Estonian, and a French one. And it brings so much diversity in the perspective, in the viewpoints, and it's very important to me to refocus on this spirit of consensus and diversity. So that's why hearing, listening to each and every acting player is actually at the core of what we should be doing. So the next question is, how and does it work? And does it work, and for whom? So it was a question about, um, I would say, opening the Pandora box of all those different privileges and uh, direct ties with the institutions. But um, 
language is performative. Language are building realities. Words are building realities. And you can't be what you can't see. So that's why I hope that tonight, my greatest aim is to open all those Pandora boxes with you guys so we can deep dive into, I believe, the new stage or the next stage of decision making and policies. Something that will be done not only for the citizens, but, and it's not bullshit, but really with the citizens. And it, we have to consider the entire value chain from the drafting to the implementation. And it's always about which kind of uh, role can we play as cultural professionals, creators. It's easy to forget um, the beneficiaries when you are drafting those policies. So let's make sure that we touch upon all the topics. And I will hand back to you, Frederick, because I'm also here to learn and listen. So thanks a lot for your presence. Yeah, I think maybe I want to start with actually uh, connecting a little bit or uh, to your initial point that nothing is created in a vacuum and in a kind of, uh, um, uh, as, as a kind of basic premise, I agree, but at the same time, if anything is created in a vacuum, it is perhaps artists because education or uh, art education specifically, I do feel is quite, uh, quite a strong bubble. And I think the legacy of that education is also that uh, it's very much about who am I as a person, who am I as an artist, who, how do I position myself? And it is sort of a positioning which happens not in relation to anything else, but a kind of internal positioning of values and of beliefs and of expressions, which is quite interesting to kind of uh, look into. I think it's changing a lot. I think it's also just sort of... Uh, um, it's not really like something that is sustainable anymore. Um to me, it's always, a, if I may, perhaps jumping on this and picking picking up on your word, it's always a chicken and egg or hen and egg issues. I mean, how does it start it? I mean, like, is it because artists and creators per se are looking in, them, in themselves or like because you have this creative approach to reality or this creative viewpoint? So is it because you're looking for something in yourself that perhaps it's harder to engage with any kind as you said you mentioned the word bubble which i find kind of interesting because we are all evolving in this kind of echo chamber we are all evolving in bubbles so our greatest aim is how to break down silos our my greatest aim is understand how can we break silos together and i would say is it because artists and creators through their studies through their academic background through their trainings are told to look in themselves to find inspiration and creation of course also deriving inspiration from the direct environment or is it a kind of historical bias and trick that historically speaking when you have a look at casual policies it used to be and intended to be one of the most I would say biased areas of policy making because it was of course hugely instrumentalized by the national states by the public authorities to convey any kind of political aims or political messages. And I think we don't have to be genius, it's not rocket science, to have a look, for instance, at the history of music, understand how some regimes and some public authorities use theater, music, arts, visual arts to portray themselves, to convey their own political message. So it's actually super interesting what you just said, because to me, arts and culture 
it's like media journalism it's like a fourth pillar you have it's 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 extremely close to politics everything you would say if every creation creation is politics it's a political act I, I would be creating something in my own uh, i would say studio or in my basement if it would if it would stay in my basement it won't be art per se to, to my own definition of art because it's all about sharing some messages conveying conveying some feeling conveying some messages and this is extreme political so it's interesting that historically speaking it's actually perhaps it's a very it's a two-sided story it's again two-headed story at the same time a super heavy political environment sector filled with enormous i would say game changer coming from the arts and cultural industries coming from the arts and cultural sectors and i'm on purpose not naming anyone because i think it would be extremely wrong to focus on some high-level thinkers or high-level game changers and, and movers because each of us as creators we are redefining realities because we are renegotiating realities we are bringing something else for different kind of experiences and performances and expressions of hearts. But at the same time, as you said, you still have the feeling that cultural policy was not serving your interest or was not serving you per se, which is interesting. And I'm coming from this historical sociological background in which I've been told to consider culture as a very heavy and very powerful and very performative political political tool. And my country, again, going back to my own roots, was extremely efficient in the 19th century at building a very strategic, cohesive cultural policy that was serving the benefits and the external perception and external communications or soft power, cultural diplomacy, you name it, but was serving the external perception of the French national states. And it's interesting to say that nowadays, we are, and also perhaps it also lies in the fact that because we're so heavily political, artists were either activists or extremely engaged, or perhaps to an extent, it was so much fond or so much aware about the necessity and how crucial and how instrumental it was for them to keep their independence. And I think it's always a very thin line for us policymakers to find the right balance between being engaged with the sector without frittering this political and this um, historical independence of uh, of views and points. So anyway, but you're right, the, stru- the, the sectors are structuring themselves, organizing themselves to an extent that is extremely new at the European scale, at the European level. And f- when I'm looking back at, at the last two, three decades, we never had such a level scale of structuration of the, of the, of the cultural and the creative industries and sectors. I have points so, here. I have a couple of points. Uh, it's interesting that you say so much about art and politics and art as being political and activism being part of art. I recently had a conversation with somebody who's leading a um, an art society, an uh, art um, you, artist union, basically, let's say like that. And they were saying that... Uh, their members are explicitly saying, do your thing, get us money, get us exhibitions, get us opportunities, but don't be political. We explicitly would like this to not be political. And obviously, depending on the country, you have very different political climates and there's uh, different consequences to organizations becoming political. We have that thinking that, you know, Art, if Frederick was saying that art is in a vacuum, I kind of, the way I saw it in any case is that when you go through art education, 
there's very little connection to anything else. It's like you have your easel, you have your, your professor who's giving you feedback. Uh, one of the reasons why Destructura was started is because none of those professors, in my case, in, 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 any, in any case, did tell you how to communicate with the outside world that's going to be your resource to live and be an artist. No, I think, but I think that's also sort of the interesting distinction to make that, of course, anything that is made is in some sense political, but, or, or you know, it is, is, is in relation to something else or an expression of, um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to, to speak or to produce anything without it being in some way political, I guess. But I think that this vacuum thing comes in exactly that a lot can be produced but a lot is also never seen and then is it really you know political if it is not engaged with in that sense so of course i can also you know like produce uh, all different kind of works that deal with the heritage of i don't know eastern europe or, or you know whatever it might be but there needs to also be a kind of willingness to engage with that work and the kind of knowledge of how to invite other communities uh, to engage with that work. To me, one of my favorite quotes for Bertolt Brecht is the following. I think he said something that very echoes what you just mentioned, both of you guys, like Frederick and Anastasia. To him, art is not a mirror held up to reality, but a hammer with which to shape it. And I think that it's super important to keep this in mind that the first row of any kind of political movement or social movement was an artistic revolution. Plateau was saying that when the music rhythm are changing, the state has to, to change as well. I mean, it's like a, when the music rhythm are changing, states, meaning governments, have to change with them. So like to me, the first row of any kind of progressive change is an artistic revolution because you will consider reality from a different perspective. Again, it's not about looking differently at realities, but engaging with reality. As you said, Frederick, and I can see some of your perhaps artistic work behind you, and they're extremely political, all of them. Not your work, well, credit to the creator, but extremely political still. The difference is we don't want to be partisan. We don't want to be bonded, titled to any political program, any political group, family, that I can understand. But as citizen, it's our personal, I believe, duty to still be aware and conscious that our rights are not granted, are not given. And we have many examples from Ukraine to Iran, from Peru to Taiwan, that nothing is granted. And of course, everything should be and is political in certain extent. But those are very big jump. Perhaps going back to the discussions, how can we enter those venues, those negotiation rooms? How can we be closer to decision-making and cultural policy as artists. Very briefly, I, I wanted to bring it back to the um, whole language question between the artists who are already producing art and want to get heard by decision-makers to make their working conditions better, and those same artists who want to be heard by grant-givers to give them grants to function and to do this art, be it more political, less political. Um, and the point of vacuum actually comes into what I want to say here because art, contemporary art, very often is seen is very inaccessible to the public. Or a lot of um, 
you know, research that you can go through shows that the general public sees contemporary art as something for the elite, as something that they don't understand, and as something that they don't want to invest a lot of time and money into. And there's a lot of different art organizations who do their best to change their image and to make a connection between everything that's happening in our societies and art. However, that curatorial language, that the difficult... I'm, I'm also thinking not only of the language that artists are using to get grants and to talk to politicians. I'm also thinking of the language that art is using to communicate its essence meaning to um, to the public that is viewing it it goes beyond language per se it's how can we bring back trust in arts and values and accessibility and mobility of i mean it's to me everything is connected and the fact that it's still seen you refer to contemporary art we could also mention performing arts it's often seen as a pretty privileged um leisure or activity or um yeah advantages but behind this i think it's a question of how can we sell how can we talked about or mentioned hard and how can we make hard closer to to the real beneficiary that's very true and uh, it's a question of trust to me from on both sides it's a question of values and value on both sides and how can we bring back the value of heart not only to decision takers but also to donators also to the broad audience and language is everywhere like i used to be in my before joining the commission i was a cultural mediator in the arts and science museum in my city for sorry for many years and it was our daily question how can we talk about the same exhibition to different audiences of course i'm going with something very niche but um question of language is uh i'm not sure if i'm answering your point uh, anastasia but um i think it's about trust and value I think it's interesting that you bring up the question of trust because I think it's also something that is a, you can kind of identify the siloing of the art sector, the question, the accessibility of the art sector. But I think you also see it as a kind of broader phenomenon that is happening within societies that, in fact, all industries have become increasingly more specialized. And there's very little people that are kind of working cross sectors or cross disciplines. And so also if you look at the sort of question of trust amongst, let's say, experts in general, perhaps, I think that is lacking. If you consider artists as kind of experts of culture in, in some kind of way, you also see it in, in you know, healthcare, in law, in, in politics, all, you know, all kind of specialized subgroups are viewed i would say relatively more to a skeptical level than than i think maybe five years ago ten years ago if you want to if you want to gain the trust of your partner whoever they are if you want to gain the trust of anyone you are talking to policymakers donors fundraisers audience beneficiaries anyone first of all you must be convinced of your pitch of your message and something perhaps I'm going to bring perhaps a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset, but it's super important to consider one thing. It's a two-sided problem as a structure, structuration, apologies for my English, a structuration of the cultural and creative sectors. If you're not convinced that you are a structured group with a common goal, with common aims, with common needs, with common expectations, of course, then you can break it down. You're absolutely right, Frederick, within cultural industries and within cultural sectors, we'll 
all have different needs. But like, if we do not portray yourself as a strategic actor, it will be super hard for policymakers to engage with you strategically because they will use your lack of confidence as a tool to serve their own interests. And I'm very frank and very honest. It's just like basic negotiation skills. And to this, I would like to jump to another point we have not mentioned. We are nowadays standing across across the continent. I'm in Belgium, you're in the Netherlands, and you're in Estonia, so it's a beautiful line. Um, having this remote discussion, remote, I mean, having this discussion remotely, and we are standing here in the post-COVID-19 Europe, right? And me personally, I'm hearing something every day that is a new normal. And something I would like to say, and I'm always saying, there is no such thing as a new normal. Because all the old barriers, all the old obstacles are still here and still in place for the cultural sectors. It's still hard to get trust. It's still hard to pitch your value. It's still hard to get access to the market, access to funding, access to mobility. And perhaps the first thing to me would be language. We need to agree on the same language internally and we need to agree on the same language internally to be confident and convinced of our pitch, of our words, of our speech per se, to be able to pitch it to anyone from an audience to decision takers. Of course, we've tailored, we have to tailor it and tailorization, but, um, but yeah. I think that's also perhaps where the format that we were trying to use within the Struktura, like where we made a little bit of a mistake uh was not that the format itself is is somehow not good or or not useful to the kind of discourse that we want to put forward but it's more that the language of the format it's it's very difficult for people to think in a language that they're not familiar with so i think what could have been smarter is that if we would have asked the participants to come up with their proposals or their ideas in a language that they are familiar with or in a language that they share and then do the translation of like, okay, how can we put this discourse into the policy level, let's say. My small five cents here is that somebody has to do the translation. And if that somebody understands both worlds and does their best to translate the art language into politics language, and it looks different and it feels different to the people who wrote it, automatically the ownership that they had over what they wrote is, you know, ripped away from them. I can't put in the hours to read through all of the proposals and to completely change the phrasing to make it digestible. But in that case, I'm interpreting what's on the page and I don't have a hundred percent conviction that I'm interpreting it correctly because I'm not the people who wrote it. And also, I mean, not, not to mention all the uh, quite justifiable rage that you would get for, you know, rephrasing somebody's work to something that they don't, no longer recognize as their work. So I see how that would be kind of a, you know, a first, first uh, thought to solve this. And I also see pitfalls in the way. I would say that I'm, I'm personally, and thanks for bringing this discussion, very concrete point. Um, I'm not standing for the solution of interpretation. I, I do see the advantages on the short term of interpreting, but I don't believe that the world we want to live in. I'm not standing for a two spheres, two words solutions in which both sides will be communicated through the intermediaries uh, ground, because that's actually what we have nowadays. And it's to me, I'm, I would be more keen to have a solution based on empathy, mutual understanding. And it's it sounds perhaps 
bit uh, groundless or perhaps floating in the air. But I think that beyond translating, I, I would love to be in the world where I would stop thinking like, oh, guys, that's not written properly. I would love to stand uh, to be in a world in which I would be like, okay, you try to express with your language or like you express something that is sensitive and sensible as well and interesting and coherent. So I believe it's just about bringing this empathy dimension in our daily work on both sides and make sure that both worlds are communicating. I don't stand for interpreters because it will, as you said, lose the ownership uh, on both sides and it will just break people aside even more. So finding ways, finding venues, I'm more standing for the creation of open venues in which both sides, both bubbles, both worlds will be collaborating. For instance, one of my aim when I was a student in political affairs and EU affairs was to start a kind of think tank organization with the art school in my in my in my in, in my city. Like having some kind of venues in which both worlds from an early age, but of course it could be at every stage of the value chain or every stage of career development, would be collaborating and really like collaborating, like labor the latin roots meaning work so co-working together co-creating and understanding both realities and both sides a civil servant that stops serving the citizens is completely useless so it's also on our side perhaps to break the bubble go outside of the golden cage and talk with those who benefit so it's beyond talking it's really acting together and to do so, I'm, I'm perhaps I'm a bit stubborn, and but I think that we must at least understand our common needs and agree on our common needs or agree on our common expectations. But creating those venues for collaboration would be life-saving for both sides. Yeah, I'm completely agreeing with you in that sense. Also, just in, I, I, of course, inevitably think about it also in a kind of educational context because that's where I am uh, most of my week. Um, and how, you know, education could, should also become a practice of relating, uh, your own sort of, uh, the knowledge that is produced within your own field to other, uh, uh fields. So I think it's, um, but as you said, it's about the value chain. So it could start at the educational world, universities, schools, how to bring those words together. But we should not forget, I'm very afraid, I'm very scared personally about the lost generations. We should not only focus on perhaps youth with youth. It will be youth with elderly, more senior staff or more senior staff with youth. It can be like both ways, two-sided. And it's all about inventing alternative. You may not have been, you may have not been, pardon, you may have not been provided with a very inclusive, forward-looking, pioneering education, but still you have the right to find tools and ways to gain this knowledge later on in your career, professional and personal development. So um, it's perhaps about mapping the allies, finding allies in our, in outside of the box. And, and most of the time, when you say think outside of the box, we focus a lot on the box. We focus a lot on our environment, but we we, we don't focus on the thinking dimension. What do we want to achieve? What are our goals? So the same thing, and perhaps very schooly tonight, but the same thing as when you are drafting a proposal for a grant or for any kind of open call, it's all about what are your objectives, what are your aims. So in reinventing this common language, Anastasia, I would say that our main focus would be why it's not about the how per se because we have all the tools but it's more about the why and what do we want to, what and why 
do we want to achieve this? I think a lot of people who uh, start organizations similar to what we started already have the why and the what kind of mostly figured out. And then they start doing something. And here, the conversation for me is more about, so I had the why, I, you know, saw what things were going on in the art sector for young people, it's very difficult, and I thought it's unfair. Uh, And um, the what is I wanted to bring young people together to discuss those issues and to kind of unite in order to say that it's our issue, it's not just mine, it's kind of relevant to all of us, we're seeing it around and we want to make it better. But then the how is something that we're, we're continuously working on for you know the future for future projects. And one of those aspects of the how did come up, and that is me doing this from the beginning with this real goal of bringing people together, looking at the common issues, problems, and facing them together and doing something about them, proposing a format. And getting feedback that this particular format I knew could be functional for the purpose was being, to an extent, rejected, misunderstood, um, and not that functional. It's also a little kind of um, my personal... I have been noticing this for a long time, but in a very different context. In uh, any organization, you start out as, you know, a participant, then you move up a little bit, you help the organizers, then you're the organizer, then you're on the board, and then you're on the higher board, whatever. And as a participant, I remember how I was at some events and I would be looking around and saying, this is so horrendously organized. This is so poor. Um, And then moving up and actually organizing those things, I was like, oh boy, do I understand everything now? And I was at uh, certain forums this year, big ones, smaller ones, different events. And I was seeing other participants being extremely critical unnecessarily of the organizers with uh, small like food measures and transportation issues. Yeah, those weren't the most pleasant. They, they aren't the, the, the highest ideal you can reach for, but they were functional, they were thought through, and they were functioning the amount of uh, criticism that was thrown at those small issues. To me, those things are small. And I was always supporting the organizers in the chat saying like, I think you guys are doing a good job. This is a bit, you know, not good. Maybe next year we can do it differently, but I appreciate all the work you put in. And coming back to the how, and you know, what you were just mentioning, this is a collaboration. I would love to do this together. Like the whole idea at the beginning was that we have a common issue, a common problem. Let's, you know, all get together and try to deal with the problem we have here. We don't have to fight within ourselves. And then with this format that maybe didn't work entirely with other things, there started to be also um, kind of we're criticizing each other instead of focusing on the big problem. That's also a question of the, of the language that was used or the formats or the misunderstandings, what have you. Uh, and the how is becoming relevant. But it's also kind of the the how is always, I think, the the biggest point of contention because I think sort of general principles of people are pretty much always aligned, like, uh, or at least within uh, communities, like we have built within the Structura. 
Uh, I don't know, like I sometimes think of this example that when Estonia was trying to declare independence, there was, you know, majority support both within the Supreme Council of like this occupied country and in the general population. But it was not clear what declaring independence meant. Like, do you form a new country? Do you go fall on some historical precedent? Do you do something different? You know, so like just sort of like everything needs a specific kind of form that, you know, but uh, I think it's let's say grand values can justify, I think many different types of forms. So then to really choose for a kind of final version of something, yeah, it, it requires a lot of uh, uh, negotiation. Yes, yes, yes. And I think you use the right word, negotiation, because it's always about, I think we should not underestimate the healing process. And I agree with you, Anastasia, sometimes we have most marvelous ideas. We bring the most committed participant around the table. We have an efficient, tested, improved, scalable, implementable program and idea and tool. And somehow the output is not perhaps the best. But it tells us a lot. It tells us a lot about the state of play. And me personally, the number of times I'm sitting in conferences or structured dialogue. And as you said, like sometimes we are focusing a lot about what we want to achieve, how it's not that efficient, but it's not perhaps a big issue if the outcome is not flawless or extremely successful because it's more about the process, it's more about the dynamic we created, it's more about the seed that we planted in some kind of community's mind or like kind of, it sounds a bit, uh, it sounds a bit artificial and very instrumentalizing, as I just said apologies for that, but it probably is more about the process and the outcome, I'm not so much focused on outcomes, like uh, the report per se that you will be producing interest me as much as the process that you initiated because you were able to do something that was not existing before and in doing this you are changing the status quo as much as by printing out a report and um and it's interesting it's more but it's we have to take in, take into consideration the healing process the moderation parts sitting down with people for like hours to just listening to them could be an answer before getting them in the room and having them work on something. Or perhaps it's all about the consultation before. But um but yeah, I, I see I see your willingness to move things forward to the best. And I would say it's a question of mindset and the difficulty of working on mindsets and languages and ethos is the fact that most of the time they're invisible. And we are working with invisible barriers and it's rightly because they're invisible that we must talk about them openly and perhaps touch upon them as a kind of like introduction point to each of every format or tool you will be developing in the future. Somehow it's also a good problem to have. I mean, if everyone is actually agreeing on a kind of general principle or a general goal of like, I mean, our case, for example, that art and culture is important and it should play a significant part in the politics of, uh, let's say, Europe or uh just in kind of the public discourse that is happening within all different kind of countries. I think already going into a project where everybody's sort of agreeing on this, I mean, on, on the one sense, of course, there is kind of frustrations and questions of wow, what kind of form should this take or how can we communicate or which kind of language to use. But at the same time, it's also, um, yeah, I think it's it's you're right in a sense that the process of doing that engagement already is 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 very good. It, to me, what, what you just said is super interesting. If this is your goal, if your goal is to prove how instrumental arts and culture are for society, for any political project, for Europe, for your region, for your community, for whoever, you must include those people around the table. It's like if 
if it's if you aim at proving to policymakers that arts and culture matter, let's bring them in the room. In some ways, we may want to to keep our exclusive moment. We may want to keep like to break it down and have a separate session or breakout rooms or whatsoever. But um, but let's bring them together. For instance, let's have a hackathon in which one young policy makers or policy leaders will be teaming up with a bunch of creators and coming up with an innovative ideas to whichever problem you will face them with. Or let's have some kind of innovative, like a co-writing articles, na 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 na, in which they will be collaborating. It's hard because you will be like, yeah, I don't know those people, and it's perhaps because, again, you can't be what you can't see. So, how can we build inclusive? progressive, forward-looking, innovative policies if we don't see the direct implications. So I would see a great potential if we would be bringing together, and since we are all uh, representative of the youth or the youngest generations, another point would be to keep in mind that youth is not the future, whatever they can say. Youth is a present. And it's your present as young professionals, as creators, to defend your values and defend your your added value, of course, to, to the global discussion. Here's an idea for you, Frederick, for future advocacy efforts. We can do this kind of workshop and maybe include it in some grant applications that we'll be writing in the months to come. Finger crossed. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's see how this goes uh, this year. I want to um, kind of also give some context here. One of my original aims was to have some policy makers, politicians at the forum. Uh, at the certain point, it just became so much work to get the basics done that all of the... We, we did send invitations and actually we had the mayor of Narva opening on our, uh, our art evening. And some other people were considering joining. However, sadly, we're not able to do that. Had again all of these um, uncertainties around funding, uncertainties around whether we are actually going to have people come because of the political situation and the current war of Russia against Ukraine. Estonia was not the most delicious destination for a lot of Western Europeans. Um, so we faced a lot of different. Um, issues, which also turned out to be opportunities since we had so many Ukrainian participants who were great. In any case, I did have a plan to involve policy makers, decision makers in the forum as guests in the very, um, as, as, as a minimum plan. And I would love to have this conversation going. I think maybe it was you, Gabriel, who said that uh, this is the first initiative that you have come across that has this conversation between politics and art. And, you know, I've, I've been going to different forums. I was at the European Allback Forum in August. I was at the Europa Forum in uh, Zurich just now. And at the Europa Forum, we also had a conversation about what millennials want for the future of Europe. And uh, we had some prepared... Um, uh, statements that they wanted uh, the millennials to give input on and nowhere was there anything about art and culture. It was all renewables, safety, AI, security. And I was there in a group of uh, young people saying, well, actually, you know, art and culture, we want to do X, Y, Z to improve the situation for our culture sector because, you know, 
what are you if you have maybe you can be well dressed well fed well transported uh, well taken care of medically machine but if you don't have anything that inspires you what's next that's a whole different conversation about what the value of actually having some inside world of art and culture means to people i, I could not applause more wholeheartedly what you just said anastasia and i think it's actually about to, how can we create this impact how can we change minds how can we bring back bring back trust and the case of the alpar um f- of course festival or summit that i myself very fond of would be an amazing venue to test new tools and new ways to re-engage aspiring policymakers and i think that's always a problem if i'm a bit controversial and it's just because i value your initiative and again i'm going to repeat myself but you're right it's the very first credible initiative i'm coming across that has this forward-looking appetite to to engage arts and policymakers on on similar grounds and work together towards perhaps more inclusive cultural policies um or more efficient ones and uh that are not working and i think it's how can we okay the same way we have to stop inviting the usual suspects the same way we should stop focusing on the established artists and established cultural professionals and focus on the emerging ones i want us and i hope that you would not focus on the established politicians and i'm becoming very controversial with all my respect for the mayor of whichever city in the world it's not i'm not super interested in what they would be doing because they are already bounded by political interest. Uh, of course, I'm going to work with them. Of course, we're going to talk with them. Of course, we're going to engage them. But I want to seed, to plant a seed, and I want to convince the emerging politicians. And I think that there you have a role to play, because no one is engaging them. And Alpar, European, um, European Horizons, the European Student FinTech, European Nostra, um, Friends of Europe, I'm giving you five names of the most important and widespread aspiring emerging policymakers organization in Europe. How can we engage them? Which kind of workshops? Let's prove them with facts, figures, case studies, policies, how culture is a game changer for social inclusion, for sustainability, for inclusive, livable working space, and for security and defense. I was, I'm just coming back from a trip to Georgia, working actually on arts, culture, and cultural industries and peace building. And I was in, in a pretty economically deprived region in Georgia, discussing this matter with local organization and local NGOs and, and, and artists and activists. And so much things needs to be told and mentioned and voiced up. So it's super interesting. Same thing in Colombia. I was there a few months ago. Arts and culture are playing a huge role in the peace building process between the government and the former militants like the FARC, whatsoever. Parenthesis apart and closed. We have the uh, we have the how, we have the why. I think now it's what's next. Sometimes when we say decision makers or policy makers, we think of like one group of people. And I think we should distinguish a little between being like politics policy and legislation because i think that's also taking like different forms and different kind of languages and different kind of vocabularies and um in some sense i also find this and that's maybe one of my uh, initial like 
thing I wanted to throw into this conversation to like wobble it a bit is that also when I look at the language of politicians, I don't see a language that is very complicated or very inaccessible or very, you know, like it's, it's quite like, this is what should be good. Uh, this is what they want to do. It's a kind of populist. Uh, there is not so much uh, nuance to it. Uh, it's quite general. Uh, the vocabulary is, is, is limited. The sentences are short, you know, slogans are like four or five words or whatever. And I think actually maybe this is also the language that arts and culture should sometimes use more because I think there is there is a kind of loyalty within artists to stay true to the complexity of things. And perhaps sometimes it would also be good to just say like, you know, in, no, a, right. in a more kind of... Uh, I mean, we are always using a very plain English, that's for sure. But for, for instance, we had a lot of... Going back to Culture Moves Europe and sharing a bit about some insights behind the scene, we had to rewrite many times the call for project because it's not obvious for many artists and cultural people in Europe what an allowance is. And this word was translated into the national mother tongue. It was not written for, I mean, of course, it's, uh, and we have Google Translate or whatsoever. What a loop sum? What's a top up? What's, I mean, it's not so much about perhaps the syntax or the way you frame your very plain English sentences. But it's sometimes about very concrete, actually, entrepreneurial mindset. And it goes beyond language. It's not just a series of words. It's really like, which kind of which kind of reality are you putting behind? And for an emerging artist that never received any allowance, it could be complicated to engage with his emotions. It also comes back then to the question of silos. And I think, you know, art careers are often... Uh, well, okay. I mean, some artists just do it themselves, but let's say I think majority of artists at a certain point study at an art academy, and it's still shocking how kind of closed off from these questions the art academy is. And it's not even about saying that, you know, in an art academy, you need to write, you need to learn how to write the perfect grants, because I also think that's a little bit inefficient, because I mean, at the end of the day, there's only so many grants, and actually, art academy should also be about renewing how the whole sector functions. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we are talking in a kind of quite complex discourse now, but actually also this kind of... <laughs> so let's do this. Let's go back to Tallinn, have a workshop, pitch it to each university in the in the capital city, and let's make sure that EU, not even EU, project management is part of the curriculum of each aspiring artist and cultural creator. Within the, the framework of the workshops this autumn, uh, we did work with an art uh, academy in Estonia. Uh, through acquaintances at a gallery, basically, uh, we ended up uh, doing workshops for their students, among others. And I, 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 I tried on the role of the professor for the first time, <laughs> which was for me quite new. I saw very good feedback. I was uh, um, reading emails of people saying, thank you so much. That was super useful, super interesting. And we're talking not even a full course. We're talking uh, two or three workshops and a very basic exercise that I gave them to find potential opportunities for future collaborations. And also, uh, there is a, a lot of willingness on behalf of the administration to do such a 
course, like a proper course where you could talk about the art sector as a whole, where you fit, where a young artist fits there and how they can uh, sustain themselves, how they can make a career, bring different speakers from the outside. Uh, right now, we are sort of figuring out with that art school how we're going to, how and if we're going to do something more substantial maybe next year. No, because I think this is, uh, uh, of course, this course that, uh, or like this kind of courses are being implemented more and more, I think. But it's very important to also acknowledge that it's really something that is a beginning because I think we have experienced this ourselves as a young organization that it's not enough to have an affinity for how to exist in the sector as it is now because it is inherently precarious and there is never enough resources. <laughs> so it's also like you need to, with part of education, needs to be about renewal. So let's look at what exists and what can we build on top of it to actually make it, um, let's say, reflective of what is needed in the now. Because um, I think not doing the second step of what is of answering the question of what is the renewal, I, I start to wonder, like, then we just kind of reproduce the same kind of precarity that is already existing at the moment, which I think is quite dangerous, actually. That would definitely be in our course if we start off with that next year. We'll see how it goes. Keep, us po keep, keep me posted, Anastasia. I will keep you posted. You Please. can also drop by on our uh, meeting in The Hague in January. We'd, we'd love to have you. Um, okay, that, that's uh, excursion into future plans aside. I would like to slowly start wrapping up and get back to what we were starting off with. We're going to have, if all goes well, and there's no reason it shouldn't, so everything will go well. Uh, if all goes well, we're going to have a new edition of Destructura with a new forum in 2024 and uh, a new group of young art professionals joining. And I want to get back to the question of format, language, conversation, politicians, and artists. A lot was said during this uh, podcast, during this episode, and I think it's very interesting and very valuable. As we're getting closer to the end of this episode, how do what 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 would what would be the words that you would like to share with the new participants who most probably will never have had any dealings with such formats, language? Uh, requirements on behalf of decision makers, policy makers? How do we make it clear to them that in order for this conversation to happen, that language needs to be taken into account? And on the other hand, how do we make the voice of artists who want to do things differently heard on the side of decision makers? so that they don't have to transform themselves entirely to become a politician. They can still stay artists. They can just engage in the productive dialogue using the right language. Yeah. On my side, A, don't shy away for difficult discussions. Engage with complexity and use those strength and weaknesses and especially focus on the weaknesses, focus on the gray area, focus on what is not working. Let's be assertive and strong enough to voice those issues. Be certain that 
and be in it's all about trust so trust yourself your issues matters trust yourself you're not alone facing those hurdles trust yourself we have and we collectively can find solutions and on those grounds i'm sure that a common tangible inclusive partnership that works for both the cultural context and the political context can be and must be co-designed and engaging advocacy through advocacy campaigns professionals practitioners academics decision takers is necessary it must be a consensual co-designed decisions and then i would say focus on the long term do not focus on the short term projects embrace what really matters for your own professional development on the long term youth is again the present and it's your present that we are talking about right now um i would say that uh working internationally refusing declining breaking down silos is needed engage with people that are sharing the same issues even if they are coming from different fields even if they are coming from different universities or different backgrounds and that's super important let's let's honestly break down silos as much as possible let's remove them and i think it's important to consider holistically the cultural and creative industries everything is intertwined sustainability inclusion gender equality and overall working condition of artists and professionals and let's find perhaps sustainable international cross-border partnerships but let's not be shy and let's trust ourselves first of all Yeah, I mean, I I really agree with the the remark about silos. I think um, a willingness to engage is extremely important, and that willingness to engage can can take many different kind of forms. You know, I think in the structura we are using a more let's say diplomatic approach, but I can imagine that also for some uh, practitioners or artists within the cultural sector, a more radical approach fits better. You know, just to protest or to organize or uh, be a bit more activistic, uh, invite the right people to exhibitions, you know, do also just uh, choose the, the, the uh, choose interesting locations where to exhibit work, you know, I think also so that is, uh, can be quite nice sometimes to, to, to kind of force people into your provocation <laughs> uh, through this kind of means. But yeah, I, I don't think there is necessarily a, like a right vocabulary to do this, but there is, uh, you need to choose for some sort of a vocabulary and be very aware of like what kind of uh, an audience can be reached through that. And I would say that there was, from my perception, a uh, total rejection of the, at, the, at first and later on, a rejection of a new format that was proposed. And I think that, first of all, it was also a tool that we're offering. Um, I think it's very useful to look at what is being actually offered as a skill, as a new way of looking at things, um, is something that is offered as here, like we know that this is functional, try it, try doing it in this way. If that's not something you're going to be doing later, that is absolutely fine. That's a skill you can consider 
to some extent acquired. And with, you know, not rejecting things outright, but having a look at them with, aha, uh -huh, maybe this can be useful uh, and maybe I can take some things on board. Some things will end up not being useful, uh, but some things, yeah, actually could uh, bring a good result. I think that's a mindset that a lot of us need regardless of the field we're working in. And it's way easier with young uh, students who are, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, who are literally just learning stuff and they're eager to try this new tool. And it's uh, more difficult with people who are already used to working in a certain manner and don't see it as a sort of new way of doing things, but rather something that's imposed on them against their better judgment. And I think we shouldn't lose the, um, the outlook of, huh, I haven't, this is something I haven't done before. This is something, this is a way I haven't uh, interacted with people before, but hmm, this, okay, this is, this can be done this way and I can derive something productive for myself out of this new proposed format. Perfect. So words of the end completely. Let's break those silos and let's dare together. Well, maybe that just politics is also not only about engaging with politicians, you know, politics is about exposing and that can be, that can be done locally to very specific groups, but it can also be done through art, through culture, to theater, through music, through film, you know, it can be done also on a broad level to build certain kind of broad consensus within society that I actually, this has relevancy or this is uh, uh, something that we need. Agreed. There's uh, different ways that Destructura can do advocacy. But uh, with that wonderful remark from Frederick, I'm going to say a huge thank you to our guests for this truly very exciting and interesting and I hope uh, useful discussion for people who listen to it. So thank you, Gabriel and Frederick. Have a lovely evening and we'll see you at our future events. And dear listeners, have a lovely time of day that it happens to be when you're listening to this. Goodbye. Thank you. Lovely day. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.